Amen. Good morning. Uh, so this text uh, resonates with every pastor. It should resonate with every pastor. This is the preaching text uh, from the New Testament. And it resonates with every pastor, uh, especially the ones who teach week to week and over time. Of the humbling and awesome privilege it is to stand behind what they call the sacred desk, to open the word of God and say, thus says the Lord. Um, this was the text that was preached almost seven years ago for my ordination sermon. Um, and I text the pastor who preached it this morning to encourage him and thank him for it. Also, it reminds me of my Uncle John. You've probably heard some Uncle John stories, but if you, you, you have not met Uncle John, he's, uh, he was, well, he's with the Lord now, five foot nothing, stocky little Italian guy, looks like Vizzini from uh, Princess Bride, um, still doing push-ups into his 80s, uh, and that is, that is not an exaggeration, but uh, was a faithful, fiery preacher of the gospel for 50 years. He would call me early in the morning on Sunday and say, preach the word, will you, and hang up. <laughs> I have a bunch of those messages, and I was listening to them this, this week, and I'm uh, so thankful for that Pauline charge uh, and faithful men uh, until really he could not move anymore from, from, from cancer. He was in the pulpit. Um, and so praise God for that. So last week set up this week. Now, I've often said this, but the chapter divisions in our scriptures can sometimes distract from the meaning of the letter. There is not a hard transition between chapter 3 and chapter 4. Just forget that big number four in the middle of the page because you need the scripture text before you get to the preaching text. It's the scripture text from last week that sets up the preaching text this week. Last week, we looked at the word of God being wise unto salvation in all scripture, breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I charge you. Timothy, you know the tool that you have. You have the living and abiding word of God. Now use it. Preach the word. Because, yes, the word searches, divides our heart, lays us bare in our homes. But the rhythm and life of the church begins on Sunday morning, the first day of the week, the proclamation of the word, so that we take the word with us throughout the week. So, Timothy, that Timothy, this Timothy, every young man in the pulpit and every old man in the pulpit around the world, you have the living, active word of God for every season. Now proclaim it. And that's what we're going to do this morning. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. The holy and inspired word of God, as Paul writes to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and by his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Let's pray. 
Love the song that we sung earlier. God, reveal your glory through the preaching of your word. Show us Christ. Till every heart confesses he is Lord. That is why we're here this morning, because he is Lord. He's Lord of all creation, Lord of Lord and Lord of Lord and kings of kings. He sits at the right hand of our Father in heaven, the seat of power and the seat of grace. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you would send your Son for us. We praise you that he would humble himself, taking on the form of a servant, even unto death. And we praise you that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead has raised us from the dead, has raised us from our sin, has raised us to new life in him through faith. We praise you for the gospel and the good news of redemption through Jesus Christ, and it is him we proclaim this morning, that the saints may be encouraged and built up, and that those who have itching ears going after, wandering after myths, trusting in themselves, that they would be given ears to hear. Listen to the voice of the Savior. Hear the truth. Come, believe, and be saved. Be with us this morning. Be with me and my words. May they not be a distraction. May they not be my own. But may they give you glory, honor, and praise through Jesus Christ our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, this is a very strong term. Paul gives many charges to Timothy. Um, but this particular word is unique. This is actually a legal term. These are orders given in a court, traditionally. So what's going on here when Paul sets the foundation of all Scripture breathed out by God? He goes right into, I am testifying in the court of God himself. I am standing in the heavenly throne room. I am God's apostle. I am standing speaking on behalf of God Almighty and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is how important preaching is. Many times we skip over verse 1 uh, because verse, verse 2 is where all the meat is, but we must have verse 1. And so I want to break this down because in the last days when things are difficult, when ministry gets hard, Paul needs Timothy to remember. He needs every faithful preacher to remember you have a divine calling because it is easy to be tempted to get up here and preach for you as the end goal. Our goal in preaching is to glorify God to your benefit, to my benefit. But it is easy to look out at you and, and seek for your approval. Um, the words impressed on the back of my Bible when, when uh, the church redid it for me a couple years ago, you are my righteousness. The reminder that my righteousness is in Christ every time I step in this pulpit Every time I open the word of God, that it is the righteousness of Christ, it is his blood that, that covers me, 
It is him who I serve. And so that is what Paul is saying to to Timothy before. My charge, first and foremost, in the presence of God. Or in the Greek, before the face of God. Coram Deo in the Latin. All of preaching, all of ministry. God is never asleep. He never closes his eyes. You are never out of his sight. Timothy, do not forget. Your God does not slumber or sleep. You serve him. And it is according to him that I charge you. And Christian, don't forget, there is not one nanosecond of your life that is not lived before the face of God. There is not one moment where you are outside of his sight, outside of his plan, where he does not care for you, where he does not orchestrate the situations of your life. For your discipline, for your joy, but ultimately for your good and for his glory. So we must begin there. I charge you in the presence of God and Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. Don't forget where your Savior is. He is at the the right hand of God Almighty. He He is one with the Father. He is one with the Spirit. Paul is telling Timothy, when you preach, look at your people, but look past your people. Look to the throne above. Look to Christ. That is who you serve. That is who they must see. And it's interesting that he gets into this creedal formula here. It's the reason why we read the Nicene Creed earlier. Who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom preach the word. Let's break these down for a moment. He is to judge. Judge biblically means to decide. He is the one with authority. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I decide. I decide between sheep and goats. I judge. This has the final judgment in view. Timothy, when you think about ministry, when you think about preaching, remember that he's coming back, and when he comes back, he's going to judge the living and the dead. Everyone who is still alive on this planet will see him come with a trumpet sound in glory. And everyone who is dead will be raised to sit before the judgment seat of Christ. Those who have done good, as Jesse prayed a moment ago, who are covered by his righteousness, will receive a heavenly reward. Those who have done evil, who still bear their sin, going to the grave, rejecting him with all their might, will receive eternal contempt and damnation. That is what is at stake. You have words of life and death. You are pointing to the one who saved to the utmost. You are to leave them without excuse, Timothy. This is why we say repent and believe, because there is a judgment day coming. And the same lamb who came without a word out of his mouth, laying down his life for the sheep, is returning as a lion on a sword, or on a horse with a sword dipped in blood, that same guy. Remember him. These are seen as successive ideas in the same event. He is to judge. When he returns, he'll be a judge and living and dead. By his appearing, a phrase that Paul and Peter both use for the second coming of Christ. 
He is invisible right now, but we will one day see him. We behold him by faith, but we will behold him by sight when he appears. Paul always has the second coming of Christ in view. The, the, the hope and motivation of the church, I will see Christ. He has purchased my life. He has promised me an eternal rest, and he has promised that my bridegroom is coming back for me. I look forward to his appearing. His judgment, his appearing, and his kingdom. Paul is looking forward to the consummation of all things. The invisible reign of Christ will one day be visible. He will one day reign in a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem with the saints. His kingdom will be seen in glory and splendor and gold and jewels forever. That is what Paul looks to. That's what Paul wants Timothy to look to. Paul describes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 to 26. 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter. This part brings together the kingdom of the ministry of Christ, the kingdom of Christ, the end and consummation of all things. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. There are only two options. Everyone born of woman in Adam is dead in their trespasses and sins. Everyone born again by the Spirit in Christ is made alive. There is no third option. But each in his own order. Christ is the first fruits. He must go, for, go first. Then at his coming or his appearing, those who belong to Christ, there is a day coming when Christ will return and those who belong to him will be risen with him. Then comes the end, looking toward the final day, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Ladies, we spent a lot of time talking about eschatology. This should ring forth to you. Right now, Christ is reigning. He is king now. He is Lord of all creation. His kingdom invisible, his saints invisible, the heavenly Jerusalem, the Zion of our God will one day be manifest. That kingdom will one day come to earth, a earth that has been cleansed of all sin, of all death, of all pain. It will be perfected. The last, all his enemies will be put under his feet. The last of those enemies to be destroyed is death. This is the kingdom that Paul sees. This is the kingdom that Paul wants Timothy to see. This is the kingdom that believers we see. We put our hope in and we look forward to. And so, when we went through this with the ladies, we talked about the day of the Lord. We can get complicated in our eschatology thinking that there's all of these different things that must happen. But the scriptures are clear. There is a day of the Lord. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 is saying that there's a day. Jesus Christ is coming. Judgment is coming. The kingdom is coming. Death will be defeated. All of his enemies will be put under his footsteps. And Paul looks forward to that day. We'll get to that in verse 8. But look at verse 8 next week. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, 
brothers and sisters, not only me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. That is why we preach, because Christ came for us. And if you are in him, the crown of righteousness is yours. And we look forward to his appearing. It is not a day of dread. It is a day of joy and anticipation and seeing our Savior face to face. This is the preface for preaching. Don't skip verse 1. There is no higher, no greater charge. So why do we preach the word? After reading verse 1, how could we not? Not only are we commanded to, but we have no other choice. Preach the word. This in the Greek is emphatic. We've talked about this before. But to preach means to proclaim. We've talked about Timothy's struggles and, and, and his timidity. But a herald was one, was one with a big voice and a big confidence in the news that he brought. He would walk into the town square and he would proclaim the victory of his king. Call everyone to hear who he serves and the message that he has. It is unapologetic. It is bold. It is declarative. He's not trying to persuade you. He's not trying to make it sound good to you. He's, he's telling you this is what it is. I am the bringer of good news. And as pastors, we have to remember, I can't convince you of anything. I can't convict you. I can't change your mind. My job is to just declare what is true and point you to the one who does convict you and one who can change your heart and your mind. I point you to my king and get out of the way. That is what preaching is. So when he says, preach the word, this is in the singular for a reason. There are not many paths to eternity. There are not many ways to salvation. There is one Lord. There is one word. There is one way. There is one truth. As we saw last week, all scripture breathed out by God. And we saw back in chapter 2, that word is not bound. Even Paul in prison, he sees his chains. They mean nothing because the word of God is freedom to those who hear it. Freedom to those who believe it. So preach the word. Because you get to. Because you have to. Paul says in Romans 10, how will they believe if they don't have someone who tells them? We need people to preach. Because it is the power of God unto salvation. So, Timothy, preach the word. Be ready. Everything else that comes after this in verse 2 is modifying preach the word. Be ready. This readiness, it has an urgency to it. It's like the, the night watchman who is not to fall asleep on his post, who is be ready when, when called upon at any point in time to warn the people, to encourage the, the, the people. In a moment's notice, you must preach the word. This picture of the watchman, I love it from Ezekiel 33. We don't have time to get into the context, but there is a time in Israel's history, many times in Israel's history, where they would not listen to the word of God. They would not listen to the prophets. 
There is a direct parallel with what he tells Ezekiel and the call of the preacher. He has prophesied, told Israel, your judgment is coming. Repent and believe. He's telling Ezekiel to warn them. But look at Ezekiel's task. Ezekiel 33, uh, 7 through 9. So you, son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel. What does the watchman do? Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. This is the Lord speaking here. If I say to the wicked, O wicked one, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn away from his way, that, that wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I'll require at your hand. That is the call on the preacher. Praise God that our justification is not based on our faithfulness. But the same is true. If God says to warn, we are to warn. And if we don't, there are consequences for the teacher. Not many of you should become teachers, James tells us. The Lord goes on here. But if you warn the wicked to turn from his way, and he does not turn from his way, that person shall die in his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. That is my job. That is the job of the preacher. That is the job of the evangelist. That is the job of the Christian witness. Warn those who are going to destruction. Encourage those who have found life in Jesus Christ. My conscience is clear. Leave the results up to the Lord. Be ready. Be a watchman, Timothy, in and out of season. Now, when we were in chapter 2, uh, one of the analogies that Paul used was that of a hardworking farmer. And so we're going to draw on that in this seasonal language for the rest of the message. Because there are many parallels with farming, farming uh, and pastoring, like last week, the parallels between parenting and pastoring, especially speaking to an agrarian culture where many of us have never met a farmer. But that was a way of life. That's how everyone ate then. It's still how everyone eats now, just on a larger industrial scale. But the farmer in that day worked long, hard hours, and most farmers throughout the world. They get up when the sun comes up or probably before the sun comes up. They work all day long with long hours, with little recognition. But if they don't work, they don't eat. If they don't work, no one else eats either. That farmer has to protect the crops and his livestock from pests and from, and from predators. He is the line of defense for everything that, that he's responsible for. And in the different seasons of the year, the, the farmer must labor differently. There's not much you can do in winter. You're just waiting for spring to come. When spring comes, you get to work and you work long, hard days. And in summer, you watch them grow and and. Uh, you water and fertilize along the way, but you're just kind of waiting for harvest. And in harvest, you, you, you get to work because there's much to do. And so throughout the seasons of life of a farmer, they will labor in different ways. They'll see fruit and growth. Other seasons will be dramin, or famine, drought, and snow. Much of a farmer's time is waiting for the seasons to change and waiting for the results of his efforts. Farmers plant and wait. They see growth and wait. They harvest and then endure a dry and lifeless winter. 
ministry feels just like that. There are seasons of running and sprinting and fruitfulness and harvest and other seasons of dry and cold and loneliness, waiting for something to happen. It is this seasonal and cyclical nature of ministry that Paul has in mind. In season, about out of season. When things are good and when they're hard, when they're convenient and when they're inconvenient. Inconvenient. When people are receptive, when they're not receptive. When your congregation is faithful, when they're not faithful. Preach the word. In season and out of season. Jesus used these agrarian illustrations often and he tells us in the parable of the sower that the sower sows the word and as he's walking throughout the countryside some falls on the path some falls on rocky soil some falls on thorny soil and some falls on good soil the sower doesn't know which one is which his job is to spread seeds and as he walks back through he's going to see shoots come up in the rocks and shoots come up and the thorns. And he thinks maybe there's some life there. And they have no root or they get choked out and they're gone. Ministry is much like that. But we're in ministry not for the rocky or the thorny or the path soil. We're in ministry for the good soil. Because when that seed takes hold, when we plant, when we water, and God brings the increase, it makes all of the rest of those seeds that turn worth it. That soil is human hearts. This is the task of the preacher. Preach to human hearts. No greater task than speaking words of life to people that are dead. And then seeing them come to life. And there is no greater charge, especially when it is not your farm. Especially when it is not your sheep and not your crop. Because the hardworking farmer here does not own it. He just manages it. A lot of pastors get themselves into trouble thinking that they own it. And that they're, they're God's gift to the congregation. No, we are a placeholder. We are under shepherds. And we must hand it back one day. I think many pastors and many church members assume that everything will go well. And you get surprised when sinners act like sinners. Look around you. Every person you see is a sinner with the potential to hurt you deeply. But in the body of Christ, the one Catholic apostolic church that we, were, we read from earlier, every sinner is a saint bought by the blood of Christ. And he has been gracious and patient with you and them. But those same people who have the potential to hurt you are also going to be your greatest encouragers if you are pursuing Christ together. But don't think that there won't be times of plenty and times of harvest and times of drought and times of famine. They're coming. Don't be unaware. Many weeks are hard. For pastors, most Mondays are hard. Timothy preached the word in and out of season. There's an old pastor saying, don't quit on a Monday. Because Sunday is a day that is coming, but it's to be with the body. And it's to praise and worship the king. There is encouragement coming tomorrow. So that's for the pastor. But for all of us, um, this is similar to our personal biblical ministry. 
how many of us have seen seasons in our Bible reading? I spoke to a pastor friend last week who is in a personal winter of the soul. He is struggling to find joy in Christ. He is discouraged every day. He's not lost his, his faith. He doesn't doubt that Christ is still on the throne or that he is not secure, but he doesn't feel the joy that he always feels, but he knows that it won't last. This is the rhythm of all, for all of us. Sometimes I'm reading the Bible and I feel like I'm, I'm getting fruit out of this. This is making sense. I want to keep reading. I never want to stop reading. And then other times I'm just trying to shove seeds in the ground and hopefully a little green thing will pop up in six months. Brothers and sisters, we are to be like the hardworking farmer. We plant in spring, and sometimes it may be weeks before we see any fruit, but we will. Our God is faithful. If you are in Christ, if you are in winter, spring is coming. Harvest is coming. There is a season for that, and in these seasons, for Timothy or for us, it reminds us to trust in the Lord because a farmer, that's all he can do. I put this thing in the ground, I must trust that rain comes from the sky and that God will bring something up. And I'm going to sit here for the next four months trusting in God. This is the Christian life. I don't know how it happens. I've never made a seed sprout, but God does it every day. You think he cares more for you than he does those seeds in the ground? Absolutely. And so for Timothy... For the preachers, regardless of the season or situation, preaching in season or out of season will and must include reprove, rebuke, and exhort. These are three terms and three ideas um, that preaching requires all three. And if any man neglects one of them, he is neglecting his duty. Because every one of you at different times needs every one of these. Reprove means literally to put to proof, to shine light on, to use reason or or, or evidence to instruct or correct. This is the staff of the shepherd just corralling you and bringing you back on course. Reproof is needed when doubts arise. When, when skepticism comes up, this is when you're talking to a sheep who is struggling in their day-to-day life, who is struggling to believe, and they need reproof. They need to be reminded and solidified that Jesus Christ is Lord, and he's on the throne, and his blood covered your sin. When, when immaturity and misunderstanding of the scripture pops up, we gently and patiently reproof and correct them. That is a close cousin, but different than rebuke. Rebuke is a bold denouncement of error. It is public or private, calling out of sin. Reproof is to shine the light of wisdom on. Rebuke is to shine the light of exposure on, to bring light onto darkness. Rebuke is needed. This is the rod of the shepherd. Rebuke is needed when sin or obstinance or division or heresy arise. You have no patience for those. They need to be called out and addressed immediately. 
And a good pastor, a patient pastor, needs to know the difference between an immature, struggling sheep and an obstinate, confrontational goat. One needs reproof and one needs rebuke. And the third one, exhort. This is to encourage. This is to recognize what is true and celebrate it. This is not in the 23rd Psalm, but it should be. This is when the shepherd comes next to the sheep and just pets them and just encourages them and just watches them, them eat and takes joy that his sheep are healthy. This is needed when people are discouraged, when people are fearful. This is also needed for frequent recognition. Well done. Good job. You were a blessing to this person. When you did this, it, it, it made a difference. That exhortation is also needed. But if you overemphasize any of those without the other, you're going to have a lopsided ministry and a lopsided congregation. Because as you went through that list, every one of us in this room is like, man, I needed the reproof at this point, I needed the rebuke at this point, and I needed the, the encouragement all the time. Like to have a healthy vineyard, grapevines must be supported on a trellis, reproof. They must be pruned, rebuke. And they must be watered and fertilized, exhortation. All of these are needed. And so, when preaching, Timothy, reprove, rebuke, exhort. And do not do this in your own authority or, or, or power. But each one of these, remember, I can't convict you. I can't convince you of anything. Each one of these, we must be fully reliant on the Holy Spirit to apply the word that he breathed out, to accomplish his Father's purpose through the ministry of the Son. This gives the preacher freedom because the power does not reside in me. The results do not reside in me. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, true preaching is God acting, not man. It is God enabling, God's power enabling man beyond human ability. The other prayer before preaching is I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit. So I want to spend a little time uh, getting into this and turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's not going to be on the screen because I want you there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, we're going to look at a, a couple of sections within this, this text. Paul sets a foundation for preaching and the work of the Spirit within the church. Look what Paul says here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. If you don't know where it is, ask someone next to you. They'll help you. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. This is at the heart of preaching. I'm going to say Jesus Christ is Lord. And the believers in the room are going to say that is the power of God. That is that is joy to me because that is the basis of my salvation. And some probably even in this room are like, that's just stupid. I'm just here because I like feeling religious and moral once a week. He goes on. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. Look at this. 
It pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Think about that. It is pleasing to God when Christ is preached. It is pleasing to God when the world is made foolish. It is pleasing to God to use his word to save those who believe. For the Jews demand signs and the Greek seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. Why is it you guys mention the cross every week? Why is it that you guys talk about Christ every week? Because Jew or Gentile, that's everybody, you need it. Regardless of if you're seeking signs or you're seeking wisdom, Christ is the answer. Regardless of you are worshiping Baal or, or Allah, Christ is the answer. So we preach Christ because everything, as we said a couple weeks ago, goes back to the cross, which divides all of humanity. The cross, Jesus said, came to turn brother against brother, father against son, bringing a sword throughout all of humanity. That is what it means. His, his judgment began at his ministry. And the sheep and the goats separated. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We preach because the word of Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Jumping down to verse uh, 1 of chapter 2. And I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. I didn't come to show off. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And it's hard for pastors often to show weakness. But when we are weak, he is strong. Verse 4. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. In the preaching of the word and the transforming of lives, we see the power of God. And then he goes into the work of the Spirit, jumping forward to verse 9. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, nor heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. You know what God has prepared? Jesus says, it's better that I go because I'm going to send my spirit. He's going to convict you, he's going to remind you, and he's going to seal you until the day of my return. These things, verse 10, God has revealed to us through the spirit. For the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. That should be separation, right? Only the Spirit of God knows the thoughts of God. But look at the good news, church. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. This is what preaching does. This is what faithful exhortation, exegesis, and application of the Scriptures does. It tells you what God has revealed to us through the Spirit of God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. This is a spiritual conversation. This is a conversation among those who have ears to hear. This is a 
a uh, frequency only given to believers where you understand eternal truth through the Spirit of God. This is what Paul is saying. When I preach Christ and you respond to the words of your Savior, you are hearing the words of the Holy Spirit. You are hearing the very wisdom and power of God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit, verse 14. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Amen. So when preaching, I'm not preaching to goats. I'm preaching to believers, to sheep who have the mind of Christ. Spiritual conversation among brothers and sisters to build each other up, to encourage one another. And hopefully, there are those without eyes to see, without ears to hear, within the sound of my voice, who see Christ and turn to him and and receive new life. What greater power than the word of God? The same God who breathed out the scriptures same God who breathed the world into existence, the same God who raised Jesus Christ from the dead has given us power in the gospel that those who have new life in him can tell other beggars where to find bread and that they have new life in Christ through faith. What greater power than to say we know the God who saves sinners and we have life everlasting in him. What greater power than to say if you are in Christ, you are always in Christ. Because no one can snatch you out of his hand. This is the call to preach. But he doesn't stop there. With complete patience and teaching. This in the Greek is all patience. This is difficult. Because there's an an urgency for the watchman. Our message is urgent. It cannot wait. We must preach Christ. We must point to Christ. But also there is patience for the results. I must be urgent with my proclamation, but I must be patient, seeking an end. John Calvin says that the pastor needs to have two voices. One, to drive away the wolves, and the other to comfort the sheep. And so a sermon includes both. With all patience, and in Greek, with all teaching. Preaching necessarily contains teaching. There is an instructive element to all teaching or preaching. There is not a proclamation element to all teaching. Preaching includes teaching. Teaching does not include preaching. But there must be instruction. There must be patience and instruction. And patience and teaching are like friends walking hand in hand. You don't separate the two. You don't have one without the other. And many men fail here. They love to teach, but they have no patience with people. Or they are so patient that they fail to teach. This is, again, a difficult balance. Because you need to know what to apply when. Remember back in chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, here's what Paul said. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. 
God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. That's our hope. That's our aim in ministry. Uh, John Stott's summary for verse 2 I think is really helpful. Where he said, he is to preach the word. And as he announces the God-given message to be urgent in his approach, relevant in his application, patient in his manner, and intelligent in his presentation. Well said. Um, Urgent in his approach, relevant in his application, patient in his manner, and intelligent in his presentation. So why? Why all the emphasis on preaching? Why do we spend so much in verse 1 and 2? Should be obvious, right? For, here's your reason. Here's your purpose. There is a challenge in preaching. Because there is a challenge in ministry. What is it? The nature of the last days demand bold preaching. The nature of the last days demand consistent exhortation, exposition, and application of the word. This is why we never slack. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. It's the same tone that he's been giving him all through chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Chapter 2, people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, on and on and on. Verse 12, indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. Back in our verse, for time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. What's he saying? Timothy, right now you may be in season in ministry. But it won't always be so. There'll be a time when you'll be out of season. When it will not be easy. When it will not be convenient. You must still preach the word. Spring, summer, winter. Timothy, our focus is on Christ's appearing. We fix our eyes on him. We are citizens of his kingdom. And the things of this world grow strangely dim. It's easy to stay faithful in the word when it's sunny and everyone loves you and everyone's smiling. But when the snow comes and the fog of false teaching and sin, when you walk outside the church, any of you who grew up up north, you walk outside of a church and the icy snow just hits you in the face. And the rest of your week feels just miserable and cold and lifeless. When that comes, we fix our eyes on the fixed point. We look to Christ and his appearing. We must still preach. All of history shows these seasons. We talked about it a couple weeks ago. The rise of the church, the gospel seeds are planted in the spring. There's growth in the summer. There's harvest in in autumn. You're seeing people come to Christ, and you're seeing all of these benefits. But usually what happens right after a great season of harvest is cold and complacency in winter. Every church, every nation, every society who has seen the benefits of those transformed by the word of God has also seen the fallout not too long after, as soon as they get comfortable. This is how it will be until Christ returns. 
It's how it always has been and how it always will be. Jesus told us himself, the weeds and the wheat are going to grow right next to each other. And they'll be like that until the harvest. But here's the thing about the weeds. They're not content just sitting next to the wheat. They won't endure sound teaching. And they want to walk away after it, and they want you to come away after them. They want to distract the wheat. That's why he goes on to say, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. The itching ears, it's a pathological condition. Like the drug addict who needs his fix. Or the dog who has fleas and he itches all the time and he's sliding his butt across the living room. <laughs> like when you have an itch, a bug bite, and that's the only thing you can think of. It just consumes you. That's what he's talking about here. Where do these itches come from? Their own passions. And they will accumulate teachers for their particular itch. This is what I'm really into now. I want to find someone who's really into what I'm into. Um, I like what John Stott says here. He says, um, here's the problem. They do not first listen and then decide whether uh, what they have heard is true, but they first decide what they want to hear, and then they select teachers who will oblige by towing their line. How many times do we see this? This is what I want to hear. This person tells me what I want to hear. How many times do we do this? We speak to the person who tells us the truth, and we don't like it, so we keep talking to someone until they tell us what we want to hear. People do the same thing with, with teachers. We should seek out people who love us enough to tell us the truth. Seek out preachers who love us enough to tell us the truth. Some translation for the itching ears is uh, ear ticklers. Um, this idea that it's, that it's an itch that just scratches you in a particular way. That's where that phrase, tickle your, your fancy, comes from. It just provokes a particular desire. It just hits you right in that right spot. Like when you, when, when you get behind the, the, the dog's ears and they just start, you know, like their, their whole body convulses because, yeah, you found my spot. People are seeking for teachers to scratch their spot. And if you want someone to scratch your itch, there are plenty of people out there who will. This is coming and this is happening. There's always someone happy to scratch it. There are plenty of peddlers of the word of God. I want to give you just a few examples uh, throughout the prophets. Jeremiah 5, 30 and 31. An appalling and horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the, pri and the priests rule at their own discretion. And my people love to have it so. But what will you do when the end comes? Same problem in Jeremiah's day. Prophets, the priests, they say what they want to happen, and the people love it. They eat it up. But there's an end coming. What are you going to do then? Next one, Ezekiel 33, same chapter we looked at earlier. Why is the watchman needed? Here's why. As for you, son of man, your people who talk together about you by the walls and the doors of the houses, say to one another, each to his brother, come and hear what the word is that comes from the Lord. It sounds good. Let's go listen to the prophet. And they come to you as people come. And they sit before you as my people. And they hear what you have to say, but they will not do it. For with lustful talk in their mouths they act, and their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. Last one from Micah. 
I think this one's appropriate, especially for our day. If a man should go about and utter wind and lies, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink, he would be the preacher for this people. But on the contrary, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, here's what Paul says of the ministers of Jesus Christ, the ministers of the new covenant. Verse 14 of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. This beautiful picture of we are triumphant in Christ right now, the already of our not yet uh, kingdom citizenship. And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. That is what the preaching and uh, sharing of the, the gospel does. A fragrance before the throne of God. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance from death to death. The other a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not, like so many peddlers of God's word, but we are as men of sincerity, commissioned by God. In the sight of God, we speak to Christ. We speak in Christ. Same thing we just saw a moment ago. In the sight of God, we speak in Christ. This parallels verse 4. These are to be read together. The same idea, verse 4 says, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Um, it's interesting here, though, I'm disappointed that the ESV lost this. But in verse 4, and they will turn away their ears from the truth. So it's their itching ears will accumulate for themselves. Here's how these two go together. Their itching ears will turn away from sound teaching and turn away from the truth and accumulate teachers. They will wander off into their own myths and their own passions, and the teachers will follow right after them. That's what's going on here. These two things work together. They will turn away, they will wander off, thinking about our farmer. This is just like the cow and the horse who have never gone hungry, who get everything that they, they need, they are fed well, and then someone opens the gate. And the appeal of the unknown, the calling of the wide open spaces, I can be king of that whole domain. Nevertheless, it doesn't matter that I'm safe and fed, and cared for here. How often do we see this in the church? How often do the cares of the world choke out those in the thorny soil? It's just too hard. It's easier over there with them. That message is much more appealing. That's what I want to hear. That's what I want to chase after. So, Brothers and sisters, this is why we are committed to preaching through books of the Bible. This is why we are committed to expositional preaching. This is why we are committed to the whole counsel of God. Because Jesus says, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. If you are in Christ, you are given ears to hear. Just like when you were born the first time, you were given ears to hear. The voice of the shepherd. To know the voice of robbers to know how to enter through the door and not over the wall. This is what Jesus says in John 10. John 10, verse 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. 
spiritual things to those who are spiritual. There is a communication. There is a knowledge, there is an intimacy between Christ, the good shepherd, and his sheep. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. This is what it means to be united to Christ. You're united to him, so you're united to the Father as he's united to the Father. We looked at Jesus' high priestly prayer over the past couple weeks. I want them to be one, Father. That's my prayer for them as you and I are one. The whole call of a Christian is to be united to Christ and to each other. And through Christ to the Father. By the power of the Spirit. So he's praying here for his little sheep, the 12 that he will send out. And I have other sheep, that's us, that are not of this fold, that's Israel. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Ears to hear. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. That is, that is preaching. The under-shepherd pointing to the shepherd. The faithfulness of opening God's word so that we see Christ, so that we hear Christ. So in brief conclusion, brothers and sisters, we are in the last days. We see verse 3 and 4 happening every single day. We've seen it happen in our body. We've seen it happen in large scale and big churches and all that. People are led by passions, filling churches with itching ears and pastors with feathers in their hand waiting to tickle them as much as they can. You ever try to talk to a child when you're tickling them? They don't think about anything else. That's the distraction that happens in many places, but let it not be so for us. Those people don't need cute or creative suggestions. They need bold proclamation. Why? Because we stand before God always. We will answer one day for the time we're given, for the word he's given us. And so we must be confident and compelling. And even if you don't preach, the best thing you can do is train your ears to the voice of the shepherd and help others to hear his voice. Remind them, remind yourself that he's coming one day. And if you're in him, he's coming for you. And your identity is in his kingdom, not this world. Christ is coming. Let us stay awake because it is a glorious and awesome day. But until he comes, we're going to keep preaching and calling sinners to repentance and calling saints to rejoice. We preach because we see Christ and we want you to see Christ. I want to close us with the words of Daniel chapter 7. the great messianic vision that Daniel saw. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came from the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is everlasting is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. In his kingdom, one shall not be destroyed. I'll give you a few moments to prepare yourself for the Lord's table. This table is for citizens of that kingdom who look forward to his appearing because you wear his crown of righteousness.